morning. Welcome to Munger Place. We're glad you're here. My name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here. We're, we're just glad that you're here with us today. We're continuing our sermon series on the book of Revelation, and we have a difficult passage to look at today. This is Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and then some verses at the end. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had a great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxury. And then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow, I will never mourn. And therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Skipping ahead to the end of the chapter, verse 21. And then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. And by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. This is a difficult reading, but we give God thanks today and ask his blessing on the reading and hearing of the word. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded of your words in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, without making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Lord, and to that end, therefore we ask this morning that you take my words and speak through them, that you take our thoughts and think through them, and that you take our hearts and set them full of love for you and for your world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is what we pray. Amen. You're not going to like the message today. And heck, I, I don't like it, and I'm the one preaching it. And I'll go even further. If it doesn't disturb you, you're not listening. One of the great values of the book of Revelation is that it 
It disturbs us. It pokes us. It makes us see things in a new way. It's meant to be uncomfortable. And if we're not uncomfortable, we're not listening. Last week, the Carnival cruise ship Triumph left port with thousands of people looking forward to a week in the Gulf of Mexico with luxury and relaxation and recreation. And that's not what they got. You've read the news stories. You know what happened. About four days from the nearest port in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, this incredible ship lost power and its electrical system, which meant no propulsion. They were stuck there bobbing along with the current. No food, at least no hot food that can be cooked, but most importantly, no effective working sewage system. And so you heard how for four days, I believe, people huddled together in the stifling heat day and night. The food rotted. They ate what little they had. The toilets backed up. Mildew caught up the walls. And the stench of sewage was all throughout the ship. We have at least one person in our congregation who had a family member on the ship. Let me tell you, if I had spent money to go on a cruise and that's the way it turned out, I would not have been happy. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for those four people. Uh, those poor people for those four days, rather. But, as other people have pointed out, surely there's a problem somewhere when we spend our national attention and the headlines talking about the plight of people, bad as it was, for four days, when others of God's children live in those same conditions literally from the day they're born to the day they die. And I've been thinking about it. I'm thinking, okay, what are the reasons for the disproportionate attention paid to that topic? Now, you could say, and this is true, this is true, you could say, well, it's always more interesting to talk about something that's gone wrong. It's sort of a man bites dog sort of headline. If the cruise had been fine, we wouldn't have thought about it, but because something did go wrong with it, it makes the news. You could say it was unexpected. When we pay a lot of money on these sophisticated cruise ships, here, uh, in our culture, we expect things to work. We expect the toilets to work and the light switches to work and the hot food to be there when we want it. That's true, too. And you could say, well, it's a story that happened here at home. And so we're more likely to know people about it, and therefore it's a news story. All those things are true. And yet they still can't really answer the question why we should spend our time talking about that story and not the larger story that happens to millions and millions of people created in the image of God. And there's only one reason that I can come up with while we spend that time talking about it. It's because this is Babylon. This is Babylon. Now, Revelation is a really difficult book, and, and one of the reasons it's so difficult is because it's really elusive. John throws off phrases and, and words here and there that meant something to people steeped in Jewish history in the first century, but for us in the 21st century, a lot of it just goes over our heads. And the word Babylon is a big deal to God's people because of what it meant historically to them. Now, i got to tell you, right now, if you say to me Babylon, I immediately think of Daniel. The prophet Daniel, the book of Daniel takes place in Babylon. I think of Daniel. No, I don't think of it because of the Bible stories. I think of it because of this crazy fast. Jake Porter, one of our staff members, has convinced me to enter in with him. It's called the Daniel Fast. Have you heard of this? Okay. It is essentially only fruit and vegetables and water. 
and I'm doing it since Wednesday. I can't believe I agreed to do it, but here I am stuck in the middle of it. So if you say Babylon, that's what I think about. Now, I'm sure it's obvious the effects of the fast have already had on me. I got up yesterday morning and stood on the scale, and it said that I was 10 pounds lighter. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then I realized my son had messed with the gauge of the scale. <laughs> and there's no change. See, what happens in the book of Daniel is that God's people are challenged to live according to their morality in a foreign and immoral land. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came in, ransacked the city of Jerusalem, and took off the best and the brightest, the elites, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, into exile in Babylon. Now, the book of Ezekiel, the great prophet Ezekiel, his whole life and ministry takes place in exile in Babylon. Babylon, the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple is the, it is the event in the history of God's people at the time of Jesus. It is of paramount importance what happened to them when they were taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Now, when John talks about Babylon here in the book of Revelation, he's obviously not talking about the Babylonian literal empire. By the time John is writing here, the Babylonian empire had crumbled into dust. Nebuchadnezzar was long dead. But John is using an idea in the scriptures to stand in for something else. Now, in John's time, he's talking about Rome. And it applies because Babylon is any culture, any empire... Any power that sets itself up in opposition to the Lord. Babylon is an empire built on violence in which the many serve the luxuries and excesses of the few. And I'm telling you, this is Babylon. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not some sort of cultural reactionary that thinks everything was better in 1955. There are obviously some cultural changes that have happened since then which are not good for us. The one that comes to my mind right away is the prevalence of absentee deadbeat dads and the breakdown of the family. And that hurts everybody, but it particularly always hurts the poor children at the bottom of the social scale. That's not a good change, and that's been a change that's happened frequently in the last 50 years. But I don't think things were better in 1955. We had Jim Crow laws in 1955. I don't think things were better in 1855 in America. I heard a story this week about a woman whose family is from Barbados, and she's descended both from the slave-owning plantation owners who farmed sugar in Barbados and their so-called illegitimate children born to slaves. She's, extended, she's descended from both slaves and slave owners on the island of Barbados. I don't think it was better in the past. When I say that we're living in Babylon, I'm not picking on America in the 21st century. It applies to England in the 18th century and France in the 11th century and Palestine in the 1st century. Babylon is any, anything set up in opposition to God. One of the hallmarks of Babylon is that people are valued as commodities to be exploited. People are only valuable for what they can do for us. Like you... I watched the Super Bowl, I watched the priest stuff, I watched the commercials during it, I watched the halftime show, I watched the 35 minutes when Jim Brown and his friends, uh, Jay, uh, whatever that guy's name is, somebody Brown and his friends, Dan Marino, didn't know what to do when the lights were out and I watched the post-game show. And I enjoyed it. 
but I read an essay a few days later that really called me to re- caused me to reevaluate what I saw that night. This is an essay written by a guy who has three little girls at home, and he said, he's a sociologist, when he looks at the Super Bowl, the overwhelming lesson he gets is the objectification and exploitation of women. And then I started thinking about how women are portrayed before the Super Bowl, in the commercials we watch, in the halftime show, etc. Now, at first, when I said that, you're going to want to push back, but I, I want you to think about it. What is the message that's being given to us by our culture with regard to the Super Bowl and the value of women? We laugh. We see the, the overweight suburban guy who sold the car by the supermodel, and we think it's funny. How deeply have we bought into Babylonian values that we miss the objectification and exploitation of women? And don't for a second think that what we fill our minds with doesn't affect our actions. I don't believe it's good for anybody to be objectified. It devalues them, people who are precious in the sight of God. But the real losers in that situation are not the celebrities and the supermodels. It's the women way down the other end of the economic chain. Slavery has been outlawed in this country for decades, and yet we still have, even among us, trafficking in a certain form of slavery. Not to mention what happens in other parts of the world. I like satire. And I like to watch, even though I don't think it's usually very funny, Saturday Night Live. Every now and then they'll have a satirical piece that I think just hits it and really makes me laugh. But a couple of weeks ago I saw something that really disturbed me, and the more I thought about it, it disturbs me even more. It was a fake commercial for something called Rosetta Stone. You know what that is? It's that software program meant to help you learn a language the way native speakers learn it. And the running joke in the commercial was for people who wanted to learn Rosetta Rosetta Stone Thai, T-H-A-I, the language in Thailand. And the reason it was all men who wanted to learn it is because they wanted to go and engage in what is a vile and disgusting tourist practice and industry in Thailand, in the underground underbelly of the economy over there. And the joke was these men wanted to learn phrases that would help them get their money's worth with what they were going to go do in Thailand. We live in a culture which is so quick to be offended by all things. We're obsessed with political correctness. And yet we run on national television fake commercials about that vile practice and nobody bats an eye. That's disgusting. It's because we live in Babylon. And in Babylon, you only have value in what you can do for me. And if you can't do anything for me, and if it helps me, we'll grind you up and spit you out. I know I'm making you uncomfortable and I'm pushing buttons. I just want you to think, is it not true? Is it not true in our culture that certain people have more value than other people? Now you can say, listen, and I'm not going to disagree with you. That's, that's just the way the world is. What's a better system? We, that's the way things are. But whenever we use the excuse, that's the way of the world, that's the way things are, means we've built another brick into the edifice of Babylon. John says to his original readers, there are things set up against the values of God, values that destroy and crush rather than build up and lift up. And those values make up Babylon. I'm not picking on America in the 21st century. Babylon is always there until Jesus comes again. But it gets personal, though. Last spring, my wife and I went to see 
the movie The Hunger Games. I guess we went with every other 14-year-old girl uh, in the nation. And it was the middle of a beautiful day. And so you have that experience where you're in the dark theater and then you step out into the bright sunlight. Not to go into the whole story, but I had never read the book uh, or the books about The Hunger Games. I didn't know anything about it. I, I thought it was a movie that was raising really important questions. Essentially what happens is there's a group of people who live in the capital city who through their exploitation and robbery of outlying people live in excess and hedonism and luxury. And one example of that in a way to keep control of the population is this thing called the Hunger Games where children are, are forced to fight to other children to death and it's televised like reality television. And we watch that movie and we go out from the dark of the theater into the bright light of an uptown plaza and I see all the fashionable people eating the fashionable food, driving the, driving the fashionable cars, hearing the fashionable music. And it was hard, hard to miss the lesson. Which I felt the Lord saying to me, you are like that. Because the truth is, I'm somebody who's like in the middle of Babylon. And like others of you here today, I've been set up to succeed in the Babylonian Empire. But there's others of us here today who know the truth about Babylon, how it grinds up people and spits them out. And yet here we all are, part of it. One of the mistakes the church has made throughout its 2,000 year history is sometimes it tries to overthrow Babylon by force. You can think of your own examples, I don't have to give them to you. Whenever the church tries or anybody else tries to overthrow the current Babylonian structures with other structures, it just leads to more Babylon. Tsarist Russia in the 19th century was not a good place to be. It was a place of injustice, but the Bolsheviks made it worse. In fact, John's vision and God's message to his people is never, your job is through violence and strength and power, overthrow the Babylonian empires of this world, God's message to his people is always, I need you to be faithful and endure it. And the same message that John gave to people in the first century when Rome was Babylon applies to Americans or Chinese or South Africans or Indians or anybody else who lives in 21st century Babylon, which is all of us. So what does it mean? If you're like me, you find yourself living in Babylon, a life of luxury and excess, what does it mean to live a faithful Christ-like life? At the very least, in the very first step, is that we can't be content with keeping our eyes blind to the true nature of the world. No acts are morally neutral. That's one of the great messages of Revelation. Each act whether small or large, has kingdom significance. Because in opposition to the empire of Babylon is the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in and that's still coming and as we'll talk about in a few weeks, one day we'll be here in its entirety. So when I go to the grocery store on this crazy fast that I'm on and I buy fruit and vegetables and air-conditioned stores and plastic containers, it matters to me, and I'm pushing buttons here, it matters to me as someone who's trying to follow Jesus, 
the fate of the people who picked those strawberries and vegetables that I eat. It matters how they're treated. And I know, I know what you're saying. You're saying, but that's, that's the world in which we live. That's the way the system is. And I'm telling you, it's still a Babylonian system. And God's people need to be educated about how things are. I am somebody who reaps the rewards of living in Babylon. But the message of Revelation, at least to me, is you need to at least be aware of the consequences of your lifestyle. At the very least, we need to be educated about it and begin to ask the tough questions. It is not possible for God's people to come to church on Sunday, but then bracket off the, what they do Monday through Friday from the values of the kingdom of God. That's a Babylonian way of living. It's time for us to ask questions, hard questions. What about the media we consume? See, as soon as I start talking about that kind of stuff, we seem to be like radicals. For which I should want to say the church should be unapologetic to be radical, to care about the exploitation of people at the other end of the economic scale. You can't, be, you can't be accused of radical when you love your neighbor too much. That's one thing. I think we need to have our eyes open. But secondly, we need to never think that God's desire for us is to somehow wield power to make other people do what we want them to do. In fact, God's people are always at their most powerful when they have no power. Isn't that an interesting paradox? God delights in using the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the mighty and wise, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. There's been a lot of hand-wringing uh, in the media recently among the Christian folks about the loss of the church's prestige in the Western world. Less people go to church now than they used to in America and way less than in Western Europe. Any kind of program that requires us to kind of be in control again just always works against us. But it's in the places of the world when God's people are at the bottom with the people on the bottom in which the church grows the most. That's why the church is growing like crazy in Latin America and Africa and China. Which means don't underestimate the significance of small acts of faithfulness. You may think, there's not a whole lot I can do. And one of the messages of Revelation is that God is going to take care of Babylon. You don't have to. And here we are stuck in the midst of it. But God can still use small acts of faithfulness for his glory in the building of his kingdom and the tearing down brick by brick of the Babylonian empire. Every bit of gossip you choose not to pass is a refusal to buy into Babylonian values and a an acknowledgement of the greater values of the kingdom of God. Every small act of kindness, no matter how seemingly trivial and insignificant in your workplace with your colleagues, every time you're the first person to reach a hand across a racial divide or some kind of social divide, it may seem insignificant in the eyes of the Babylonian in the world, but God honors that and uses that in a powerful way. Don't ever confuse your seemingly powerless position for insignificance. But perhaps most importantly, what you and I do when we live in the midst of Babylon is we practice the means of grace. That's a technical term in the church. It just means doing the things that Christians do. See, you may think that the reason I think it's important for us to be in worship every week is so we can just check your name off a list and have more people in church. That's not what matters. One of the reasons weekly worship is so important is because I don't know about you, but I need my mind renewed each week about who's in charge and what really matters in the world. Because too often I find myself living by the values of Babylon. 
And every week when we gather and worship and we say, holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty? By the way, a quotation from the book of Revelation. When we do that as a body, our minds begin to be shifted in a different way. begin to see the world in a new way. That's why weekly worship is valuable. Whenever we make a commitment to give, we are shrugging off the values of Babylon and building our lives in the kingdom of God. When we receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, it's a means of grace by which the body and blood of Christ nourish us for a faithful witness in the world. In fact, maybe the most important thing we can do is stubbornly cling to the means of grace that have been given to us by the saints and the martyrs for 2,000 years and then ask God, show us where we're being unfaithful and give us the courage to change. Because Revelation's message is very clear. Babylon may look inevitable and invincible, but ultimately it's coming down and God's going to pull it down and everything built on it. Jesus says there's two kinds of people. There's those who build their lives on rock, which is me and my teaching, and people who build their lives on other things. Everything built on Babylon will one day come down like something built on sand. It's not inevitable, regardless of how it might seem. In fact, often God's people are killed by their resistance to the Babylonian empires of the world. But even though we die, we know Babylon has not the final word. The resurrection of Christ gives Jesus the final word, which means he can even triumph over death. So here's your job description. I know we have all different sorts of people here, uh, believers, skeptics, people with all different sorts of struggles and trials. I'd like to invite you as you go about your work week with your family, have dinner together, things that you do, to think about and ask God to show you where you are being acculturated into Babylon and say, Lord, show me those places where I'm being led in a direction apart from you, away from you, and, and direct my steps back towards you. Lord, show me opportunities where I can be faithful to you just in my everyday life. Because the message of God to his people is that one day he is going to take care of Babylon. It's on us to do it. In the meantime, we're to live faithfully in the midst of a fallen, idolatrous world and to love it. In fact, through Jeremiah, God's message to the original exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29 was to seek the peace and the good of the city in which you've been exiled. And so your job this week is to look for ways in which you're buying into the Babylonian values of the world, to repent, to turn away from it, and to say, God, give me opportunities then to love you more and love this fallen, broken Babylon more and use me regardless of the cost. That's your job this week. May God give us the grace to see the false values of the world the courage to repent, and the grace to live into the values of the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Last week was our first meeting of our youth ministry, which we've been so excited about. We had, I think, 17 middle school kids and 18 high school kids, each of whom is precious in the sight of God. We receive an offering every week, and I know sometimes it's hard to understand how what happens in the offering plate or happens online affects the ministry that God is doing through this place. Well, that's one clear way. Because of your generosity, we're able to have a space that's safe, that's clean, with the staff and the volunteers and the food to reach out to middle school and high school kids in our neighborhood. So I just want to thank you for the generosity you share every week. And I just want to pray that God would bless your generosity and use our gifts for something great in his name.
As the offering plates are being passed, I just want to uh, draw your attention to the song that Kate will be leading us in. It reminds you again that Jesus is the light of the world. It may seem dark at times, but ultimately he's the light. And the more we sing and praise him, the more we're able to see his light and turn away from the darkness of the world. So pay attention to this song. <laughs> 